the way in which human society is becoming more in the moment, the loss of a sense of history, the loss of a sense of respect for institutions that have historically earned their crust, that kind of radical quasi-anarchism that we're starting to see emerging and that we see in British politics even, that isn't a capitalist thing as such. I mean, it has a relation to it, but it's a, it's a function of the way in which an individualist, rationalist society is evolving in the 21st century. Hello, welcome to Confessions. My name's Giles Fraser. This is the podcast where we talk to interesting, well-known people and try and drill down into their core beliefs and work out what it is they're all about and so forth. And I'm delighted to have with me today Jesse Norman, Financial Secretary to Treasury, MP for Hereford, trumpet player, <laughs> old Etonian, very tall, banker, philosopher, all sorts of things. Um, Jesse, the, the, the sort of shtick we have here is that and in fact, I was reminded of it a little bit uh, reading your book on Burke yesterday, is that um, thinking is always situated. It's never the sort of view from nowhere. And, you know, and, and you, you make this point very well in your, in your book on Burke. And so what we try and do is just to start with, before we... I want to talk about political philosophy with you, but before we do that, perhaps we can just situate you... Yes. ..in, in terms of how, where you come from, how you grew up, how your ideas began to develop before they came to fruition, as it were. Can you just paint me a picture? Yes, of course. So uh, I was born in London. Uh, I'm the oldest of five children. Uh, my parents, uh, my father was a, um, is a kind of phenomenal entrepreneur. He, uh, when I was growing up, was running a toy company called uh, Berwick Tempo. And then he set his own toy company up called Bluebird Toys and invented a a toy called Polly Pocket, which became a huge success. Uh, and then he uh, founded or refounded the Roundhouse in North London in Chalk Farm. So I grew up in this kind of uh, North London uh, environment. My mother was an incredibly loving and caring person. She was a painter. She's not dead, but uh, uh, she was a painter. And, of course, she was running around bringing up five children while trying to pursue a career um, of her own um, uh, painting and drawing. So it was a very mixed background. My father, very energetic. My mother, very kind of um, artistic and loving. And uh, I, I was the kind of product of an educational experiment. I went to my local uh, state primary school. Then I went to uh, a progressive comprehensive school in North London. Then I went to a crammer for a year and a half. And then I went to Eton. And then I was... Um, you know, and I, I, I went, I, I joined as, I think, I, I think that's right to say, the bottom boy, the bottom class, the bottom year. So oh, really? <laughs> I had this interesting experience of seeing hierarchy from the, from the other end. And, and that's been part of my, I have a very egalitarian view of the world, and I think that's part of it, actually. So are books and learning and ideas and so forth are a part of your, your early experience? Yes, I would say so. I mean, um, my parents were both... Um, reasonably well educated but they were not enormously bookish people i mean right. i mean dad had a wonderful library of kind of modern uh, history and um politics because those were topic and business and things and he was he's interested in uh, but um, I mean, he wasn't an academic as such. He isn't an academic. So where do the so where, where does the life of ideas for you come from? Where's the spark of well, it, interest for that? I, I mean, I've been thinking about this, and I, I think it comes from the fact that I I never regarded myself as having been properly educated, and so I kind of spent my early life and um, you know kind of trying to work out uh, 
um, uh, were what I thought about things. And then I spent the rest of the rest of my life self-educating um, in a funny way. In a continual way. process. Well, in a way. And, and also it, it has the effect that, you know, um, if you are... In, as I am reasonably independent-minded, you want to make your mind up for yourself and you want to have your ideas as clear as you possibly can make them. And so I found much later in my life, after I'd been to university and then been off and done a bunch of other things, that I went back to university at the age of 35 and did an MPhil and a PhD. And that was because I kind of had an undischarged desire to, to do some philosophy and to... Um, uh, explain to myself certain things. And then, and that's continued in the books that I've written because a lot of them are, in fact, they all are, without exception, about explaining things to myself and then explaining things that I think might be interesting so to other people. So you do your PhD at the hotbed of secular liberalism at <laughs> University College London. Which, I, by the way, I absolutely adore. Oh, do and, you? <laughs> oh, you see, it's a, a marvellous institution. Well, we won't, we won't tarry on that because no. I, well, we might disagree about that. Well, uh, you've got to love no, you've got to love a university, Giles. That um, is the first one where you do not have to be an ordained member of the Church of England to teach. I know that's bad for you, but <laughs> you probably regard that as a restriction on uh, or an adequate. Uh, as I say, hotbed of liberalism. Of, uh, yeah. Well, but also extension courses. Um, you know, first uh, place to go if you were a Jewish, or you know, I mean, it's just a fantastic yes, place. So. Um, is your PhD was that on Oakshot? Was that uh, is that how the Oakshot book originally? No, it's it's um, <laughs> this is one of those things I never talk about. It's in the philosophy of mathematics, um, oh. my PhD and my MPhil in, in philosophy of logic. So completely different topics. It's about um, it's about mathematical reasoning and in geometry and. Um, Kant, if you really want to know, critique no, of pure reason. Well, Kant has a view in the critique of pure reason about how we get um, knowledge, and um, he thinks geometry is a particular example of how we can get a certain kind of knowledge about the for world. The possibility of understanding what he calls synthetic a priori reasoning, yes. knowledge about the world which doesn't require, as it were, empirical, doesn't involve empirical justification. Yes. Oh, and wow. so I was. Just Were you sympathetic that. to that view? Well, I and I, I uh, use this is going to kill your audience. But I, I use um, uh, uh, Euclidean geometry, ancient Greek geometry, to show how Kant might have been right about that, and how we can reconstruct his view now in a way that I think makes it interesting and. Um, uh, I think, uh, philosophically and mathematically productive. Uh, there has, it has not had a lot of followers, I have to say, but it's uh, <laughs> an interesting... I thought it was a very interesting... And, of course, it's a vindication of Kant as well as an idea about how uh, uh, visual mathematical reasoning actually works. And then you spend some time as, as a banker. Yes. BZW? I mean, well, other way around, actually. Oh, I, I, I had I had got out of university and I went to live in America for six years. I did various things. I worked... Uh, for I helped to set up, well, I was one of the first employees of a company called ISS, which helped to set up an industry and in, uh, corporate governance advisory services at a time when there was a takeover boom in America, T. Boone Pickens and Carl Icahn and all those people. And then and then I uh, uh, went to New York and worked for an English bank called Climate Benson, and then I worked in Boston running a, a charity that gave away um, medical textbooks in communist Eastern Europe. It's kind of fighting communism and trying to set up free institutions by giving away these incredibly valuable cancer textbooks and things like that. And so that was a very interesting experience. Then I came back to England and I took the view that... And I and I met this marvellous woman I wanted to get married to. And so I, um, uh, I took the view that I ought to try to move away from philanthropy um, in Eastern Europe and, uh, as it were, with all that marvellous but quite limited in its scope, to advice and, of course, the provision of money. And so I went to work for Barclays at that point, really on Eastern Europe, and then I did a bunch of other things for Barclays, and then I went off and did philosophy. 
So I, I suppose this brings us to where we're, our conversation about political philosophy might might start a bit here. Um, and I suppose for me, I guess the crash of 2008 sort of looms large yes. in what I want to talk to you about to start with in terms of a defence of Smith um, from both his detractors and his admirers, yes. which is your book, um, yes. that they both get him wrong. But a defence of Smith, but it's very interesting that the defence of Smith comes in the wake of this you know, financial crisis. Yes. Barclays being, you know, around in that financial crisis as well and well, so and, forth. Well, and long after, luckily long after I left, but quite heavily implicated. Yes. I mean, as you know, the, the, the legal ramifications of the Barclays' attempts to bail itself out rather than to accept government money are still being explored. And the, there's been certainly some very serious allegations made about the way in which the board of Barclays and its senior management appeared and behaved at the time. I mean, I think it's a very good place to start. 2008 crash was... Of course, a massive wake-up call to the periodic destruction that gets wrought when the financial sector blows up. And the fact that it's become as widespread and and deep and interrelated as it has been, and the fact that you um, are now, it's being understood that these lemming-like urges to leap off a cliff, of course, uh, um, can take everyone with them, um, that's become terribly important to understand. And of course, it's cost, it's cost, capitalism, open markets itself, into great disrepute. And so the dilemma has been that capitalism doesn't seem to be working um, if, from a financial perspective. And certainly for there is a strand of argument that isn't working for some people um, uh, around the world or in different countries. And uh, so the question is, is there a vindication to be made of open markets that doesn't go down the route of saying, well, we accept market fundamentalism with all the kind of negative... Um, aspects of that, but at the same time says there are lots of options where we can fall short of a kind of idiotic socialism or nationalism. And so how how does um, the wealth-creating bit uh, of capitalism get held in check by the moral bit, as it were? How does the uh, wealth of nations get held in check by the theory of moral sentiments. Yes, of course, you don't. I don't accept the idea that one is about morals and one is about uh, as yeah. it were, self-interest. I think, but you understand Smith, my question. I absolutely understand. So, so Smith has the same view all the way through, which is human beings are subject to a variety of different uh, instincts and constraints. They have a um, they have a, a, a was it moral norms and values that they generate when they work with each other. But they also have economic incentives. And the fact that he focuses on the two sides in the two books doesn't. Mean mean that it's a different picture. So uh, to answer your question, uh, the first thing we have to do is by being clear about the facts. Now, the facts are that open markets are by far the greatest tool of self-enrichment over man's history. If you looked, and I can't do this on radio, but um, if you look at the uh, real, as it were, income per head over human history, it looks like this for 1,500 years. Yeah, your finger's pop- going flat. <laughs> I'm going flat. It pops up in 1600, kind of doubles between 1600 and 1700. Between 1750 and 2000, it goes up by 30 real income. So it's doing this. It's absolutely astonishing. And it's not just doing that in uh, Western markets historically. It's also doing it now uh, because of the influence of technology, and in particular the mobile phone. I mean, you know, trade more than aid is lifting incomes in Africa, for example, faster than at any point in its history. And uh, we see the same thing in China and the same. Now, what's happening is intra-country, that is to say within country, inequality is going up in some countries. I mean, not in the UK because of the crash in part, but also for other reasons. Um, We have a well-functioning welfare system. We're quite good at redistributing income. But uh, 
Uh, and of course, there's a question about income versus wealth. But um, you are seeing the very top end of the inequality spectrum take off. So the question is, if those people are setting the norms and the standards, is that saying something about our culture? And what's fascinating about Smith is that very far from being the great apologist for wealth and inequality and greed, exact opposite. He's incredibly um, egalitarian. His view is that um, although uh, free markets operate on a, the desire for people to do better for themselves and the people around them. That's a natural human instinct. What that degenerates into is, you know, a slavish admiration for the rich and the powerful, which he is extremely critical of. Yes, yes. That's and, right. and the same is true uh, about a kind of materialism. He has this wonderful phrase, trinkets of frivolous utility, which he thinks people become obsessed with when they allow this materialist instinct to kind of take over. So you ha he has that view within the wealth of nations. And then, of course, he has the same thing in the uh, theory of moral sentiments because he thinks that our moral values don't come from God, they come from each other. And what that can lead us to do, because we're constantly trying to impress and earn the esteem of others, is to do so by admiring the wealth and, and the famous, the wealthy and the famous in their kind of um, social interactions. And he thinks that's morally corrupting in the same way as it's uh, economically corrupting on the other side. You, you make the point that the famous invisible hand is A, only referenced three times, I think it is. Um, uh, but the, the idea of seeing this as an alibi for selfishness yes. is, a, is a mistake. Yes, it's absolutely a mistake. Uh, uh, Smith is the, uh, is the opposite of that view. I mean, he's interested in how markets function, of course, and um, the invisible hand is a metaphor to describe this way in which markets can generate unexpected and beneficial social outcomes when no one necessarily intended them to be such. He doesn't think that's how humans actually behave. He just says you don't have to believe, believe in altruism to get lots of, as it were, pro-social outcomes. And I think that's an, that's, a, that's an analysis that's been enormously widely vindicated. And that's one of the reasons why when you look at Smith's reputation, um, amongst economists, just to take an example of people who have looked at all, they don't look very deeply often at what he says. Um, you know, you, it's, it's like the geometry of, uh, or the geography of uh, Sicily. I mean, you know, you go up and down a little bit and then you get to Etna and it's just vastly more um, prestigious. And he has more citations, more references, and as it were, therefore, more prestige in an academic sense than any other economist by a factor of three or four. I guess an old lefty like me still wobbles at this, you know. The, yeah. the, 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 I still have a sort of wobble about um, that, that even though I fully acknowledge your finger goes up and the graph goes up and people get wealthier, sure. that there is also a sort of moral cost to this in terms of uh, selfishness, individualism, uh, a collapse of community, that somehow the sort of over-concentration on maybe GDP has also negative consequences about the sort of, on the sort of society we want to be. Berry Football Club goes into administration because we end up only concentrating on the sort of commercial aspects of these things. I don't know. I mean, I, well, I, 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 I have a residual anxiety about all of this. Well, I completely understand that um, one can have an anxiety about it. And of course, everyone does. I mean, I would be the same way. And when you see people, you know, lining their pockets. There are many famous examples in the press from time to time uh, at the expense of other people. And you see egregious uh, theft or criminality. That's right. And if there was, uh, and to the extent a society has a set of norms that legitimates that, then of course, that's wrong. But let's not, let's not confuse two things. One is um, 
the way in which the system ought to work when it's being, as it were, properly operated and the way in which the system periodically does work in this country when, uh, as it were, it goes wrong. And part of the problem, of course, in the 2008 crash was that an awful lot of the norms that certainly on a Smithian view, ought to be operating within the banking system, within um, finance, within business, are not working. And let me just give you a little example. So, so uh, take CEO pay in this country, which has exploded over the last 20 years. Now, it exploded in America before that. What's basically happened is a norm about pay has come over from America via kind of boardrooms and been adopted here. And of course, there's no necessity for that to be the case. You can get very high performance. And there are countries around the world which get very high performance from CEOs who are at least as good as the ones we have in this country on much lower pay scales. It's only because we've allowed ourselves to get a story about the way in which the chief executives' companies ought to be compensated. And it's only because the market for chief executives isn't working very well, and therefore it, they tend to choose from a very narrow pool, uh, that, these, um, that these egregious pay awards are allowed to happen. Exactly the same thing can be said about, for example, fees paid for financial transactions, which have massively exploded over the last 20 years, um, often completely without any relation at all to the service um, being provided or the quality of the work. So this is why people think of the City of London as a... Uh, and, and and other sort of institutions like it as as means by which a small group of people become fabulously wealthy uh, while then, taking while taking very small amounts of risk well, i mean i should I say mean, not even i mean but, but even worse than that isn't it i mean the, the criticism after the bailout and the financial crisis is that this was a form of socialism for the rich in which you know that uh, wealthy people um uh, the people in uh, uh, that they take huge risks, and if those risks fail, then they're being bailed out by national governments. No, no. Well, I think I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, the problem historically is, of course, that um, the 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 system is set up so that the insiders make an enormous amount of gains. Um, if the system itself goes pop, then you and I are paying for it, yeah. and um, that that isn't historically by any means how the system has always operated. It's very much a function of the last. Uh, 20 years, because as I've said, the norms have changed, the culture, the bonus culture changed, a lot of the specific interlinkages between markets changed, there was an explosion of new financial products, which no one really understood. Yeah. I mean, I can say all this luckily, because it's a long time after I got out of the city of London, but I still have a perspective on it. Yeah. And I think it's something that um, is a, you know, um, very much unfinished work even now. And in fact, I just wrote a, a little thing on Walter Badgett and the Spectator pointing out that the problem of um, uh, as it were, the, the moral hazard of supporting these institutions um, uh, and then allowing yourself to um, be vulnerable when they do explode hasn't by any means gone away. It, didn't, it hadn't gone away when Overend Gurney went bust in the 1860s and it hasn't gone away now. I mean, but, and, but there is something, isn't there? You talk about this sort of fight, these complicated products and so forth. Yes. These sort of credit default swaps and all these things sure. that make Euclidean geometry seem like child's play, you know, in terms of how complex they are. Yes. This... this, this creates the idea that um, there is a mechanism for enrichment which is beyond the ken of, of, of the sort of commerce, natural, productive, beneficial commerce that Smith was writing about. Yes. No, I think that's true. And actually, you could make the critique worse. 
jealous because you can say that in some cases these products might have been designed to be yes. um, or, as it were, willfully allowed to be so complicated that in reality no one could understand them. Yes. Um, and or, or, or only a tiny number of mathematical quants at the originating institutions uh, could understand them. And therefore they were uh, heedless as to whether or not uh, these things were bought by people who understood what they were um, and in many cases might have been trying to sell them to institutions who they knew in advance probably did not understand them. So you can make all those uh, arguments and uh, I, I you know and obviously the, it depends on the facts in the particular case and that was in many ways the point which we started but I would be very very critical of that stuff myself and indeed I was when I was on the Treasury Committee I felt that um, the the uh, financial system and the Bank of England had done mu- nothing like enough and indeed the government at the time had done nothing like enough to crack down on this. I, I had a fascinating did a fascinating confessions last week with Solari Seedentop um, ah, such which, interesting which man. was very, very interesting. And he sort of slightly rocked my world uh, when I was talking to him. And was a brilliant. And he painted a picture for me of the development of, of liberalism, which is his thing. And liberalism, this is how I've taken it. I mean, I apologise to him if I've got this wrong. But broadly speaking, liberalism um, uh, isn't necessarily about indivi- uh, individuals. If there's, there's uh, and the celebration of the individual above all things. There is a sort of his great hero's Tocqueville. Yes, and, and mine know, too. And, 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 astonishing yes, man. And the, the idea that actually there's an, there's older traditions of liberalism Yes, um, that actually are more compatible with a sort of communitarian view of the world. Yes. And, and, it, and that actually that sort of liberalism got perhaps bent out of shape by the... Maybe things like the Cold War, when people were sort yes. of like asked to be, are you a capitalist or a communist? And yes. so everybody sort of, you know, the, the sort of liberalism becomes Hayek and, yes. and Thatcher and uh, yes. w- whatever. And actually, there's a, an attempt to reclaim something of that need to reclaim something of that Tocqueville, maybe Burkean type of view yes. in which markets and commerce sit at in in a different relationship to the needs of community. Well, I, I mean, listen, Larry has forgotten more about this stuff than I'll ever know. So it's would be, and I didn't hear the we've got things I can't comment on. I'm definitely going to go and listen to it now. Yeah. But but I think it's certainly true that there are several strands of liberalism. I tend not to use the phrase because. It is so ambiguous in its yes. different forms, even in this country, and that's before you get to American liberalism, which is a kind of um, portmanteau term for ideas on the left. Uh, again, entirely different. I suppose the point I would make is that the core instinct of 19th century liberalism, late 19th century liberalism, um, arising out of that, has been the idea that the individual will is to be privileged, and that actually the, the the individual cannot be made the subject of duties. And that's a view that would have been regarded as absurd 50 to 100 years before, and indeed I think would have been regarded as absurd by Gladstone himself, sometimes associated with Gladstone um, as, as it were being a founder of yes. modern economic liberalism, if, if you like. Um, uh, uh, Burke would never have understood that at all for a second, and he and and uh, and Tocqueville uh, and nor Tocqueville either. I mean, for Burke, the, the what is liberal in society is the freedom that comes from being able to live alongside others in an orderly way with institutions that have earned their yes, keep over yes. time and are the repositories of knowledge and understanding. And it's that affordance that society gives you that allows you to live a free and happy we're, we're life one on that. broadly yeah, on your exactly, own terms. Exactly and, the right. joy of, and the joy of that view is several-fold. One is that um, it gives a proper credit to something we forget about the whole time now, which is kind of history and the importance of, of respecting what we've inherited and the wisdom of what we've inherited. 
inherited, something that seems absurd to a modern ear. You say, well, like, how did that earn its keep? We're all Benthamites now. No one, everyone yes, says, yes, well, yes. You know, this thing has, has no current value. Yes. Actually, the idea that it might know more than we do, what is a conservative? Yes. A conservative is someone who believes institutions are wiser than individuals. I suspect you're a tacit conservative without acknowledging I, it. No, no, I am, I am. Um, I'm, um, I'm a hard left Tory. Yeah, no, good. Okay, <laughs> so we're in agreement. So then, but, but the very quick point is that it's also a fantastic correction to the besetting sin of liberalism, which is individual and generational arrogance. The idea that the world belongs only to the living, which I think is an absolute shocking idea and one that we should be... And the idea... No, it, it, it's always a religious point in a way because, because just as a person with a strong religious faith would believe that the conditioning fact about human life is the existence of God... Yeah, as it were, overarching an individual life. So a, a conservative my stamp believes that history and society and their affordances, whatever one thinks about God, have that overarching impact on human lives. And therefore, the idea of thinking of an individual independently of a society is incoher- intellectually incoherent as so, well as quite immoral. So here's the thing. So when um, Solari talked about Tocqueville, one of the things he was talking to me about is that, 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 that what's terribly important to this tradition of liberalism, if we call it that, is the dispersal of power. Yes. And the dispersal of power happens uh, through institutions, as you yes. as you rightly say. And so, you know, the, the judiciary, the universities, the army, the parliament, you know, and, and, yes. all, and all sorts of things, football clubs even, you know. Yes, like, absolutely. Um, um, and here's the thing. And so when one part of that... Um, uh, one part of our when one part of the institutions becomes too powerful, yes, and, and as the monarchy, you could say, Absolutely. did and so forth. Yep. But it's not the monarchy anymore, and it's not posh people deadheaded their races anymore. The thing that's become too powerful is the city. It's that's the thing now that that actually has sort of grown out of all proportion to the other institutions that we have and sort of overly dominates them. That would be my view. Yes, I think I think a, a, a more calibrated view might be this. Um, we are going through a phase in which it has been the city in this country. But it, not, it isn't always and it need not always be. So, for example, in America, uh, you, they would say the overdominant force at the moment are the tech platforms. You know, they exercise power yes. without accountability. They are hoovering up enormous amounts of talent that ought to be going into uh, or that could be going into other more productive or equally productive in different ways in a balanced way, industrial and social contexts. Um, in Britain, certainly it's been a problem historically that the city and the professions have hoovered up a lot of talent that actually ought to be going into industry and business. That's been a problem in Britain for um, over 150 years. So the, I think the critique exists. The question is what the shark on the reef is what the institutions or set of institutions that are predominant and possibly too strong are may vary from time to time. But the analysis, which is that a society with some institutions that are too powerful becomes unbalanced, and in some sense, uh, in that, in in the good way, um, in in, in, the, in, the, in the way we're understanding, illiberal. Um, is, I think, a valid one. And we have to, every generation has to be on the lookout to see what are the institutions that are becoming too powerful and try to check them. Here's a question I've asked a number of people who've been on this uh, programme because it just bothers me. In terms of cons- uh, being a conservative... Yes. So capitalism is the greatest change agent the world has sure. ever known. Yep. And yet <laughs> you want to conserve stuff. And so you've got to, you have to ride this balance between this incredibly powerful change agent that's constantly wanting to transform the world yes. and your respect for uh, the way in which things have been done. 
and the best of the way in which things have been done in the past. Yes, the, I mean there is a natural tension. there is a natural tension between a a a system which is constantly rewarding change and innovation, uh, particularly powered by technology. Uh, which is what much of modern capitalism is, and a conservatism that seeks to preserve what is good about the past. And there's certainly a point in where you might say the pace of change can be so quick that the question of what you conserve just becomes difficult to understand. Uh, I don't think that the tension is as heavy as... It, I think it can be overstated. I would say two things. One is a little small grace note. When people talk about Tocqueville in this very good way, what they're really doing is ignoring the fact that Tocqueville is channeling Burke. They just don't want to go back to Burke and think about Burke. You should go back to Larry and ask how much Burke Larry has read, because I'm sure it's everything. But that's, the, <laughs> but that's the, the, in a way, the love that dare not speak its name. The, on the point about capitalism, the point I would make is, it, it, here is where Smith is so important, because Smith doesn't talk about capitalism. That's not a phrase he has. It's Modern industrial capitalism doesn't rise until the 1850s. You get the corporations, you, the corporations in America and this country, and, and that starts to come underway. And then you get limited liability companies and you get open markets. Smith is a theorist of markets. But what Smith does talk about commercial society. Now, that's a, that's a small change of nomenclature, but a really important change of emphasis, because it takes the emphasis away from capitalism in the phrase that we're using as the rarefication of kind of hard capital formation, that kind of stuff, which in a way ignores human capital, skills, all those things that are characteristic of the modern era. But it also focuses on society. Commercial society is a society in which everyone does better. Capitalism is not an idea in which everyone does better. Capitalism is in which, as it were, the, 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 the people who succeed in some sense tell themselves a story about how they deserve to succeed. Yes. So you get this absurd myth of meritocracy sitting around a lot of that. And there's some very interesting books about to come out on that topic. Um, uh, in commercial society, the whole validating, legitimating fact about commercial society for Smith, that is the move from a feudal society where people were dependent personally on each other to one where they interact as presumptive equals. And as he says, every merchant, uh, every as it were, man um, is, as it were, a merchant and lives by exchanging. That extraordinary moment of egalitarian leveling off that occurred in the 18th and 19th century or began then, um, that, that's a society in which only derives its legitimacy if everyone does better. You can't have people who do worse for any sustained period of time or locked in groups. Otherwise, the illegitimacy of that arrangement is quite... Now, that, I think, is a very powerful insight so are we which we've seeing underplayed. Now, so, so we've, we, you know, one of the things that's, that's we haven't talked about here, that's, that we have the financial crash, uh, 2008, which talked a little bit about. But alongside this, and over a longer period of time, we've had this thing called globalisation. Yes. And this thing called globalisation, which is, you know, taken... Again, to a different level, this this, this commerce uh, sure. that, that, that Smith was interested in, sure. wanted to promote. So social some, commerce as much as... as yes, I mean, call... it's your dad and his toys. You know, sure. that's the sort of world that he's really talking about. And sure. suddenly, you know, it couldn't be more different to have global multinational companies. And then there's a sense in which there's a reaction against all of that globalisation through populism, nationalism yes. and all this sort yes. of stuff and so forth. And I guess that brings us to... The, the events of the day, really, well, it, Jesse, and European Union and, and you know, reactions, nationalism and reactions against this sort of globalised sort of uh, commercial juggernaut that some people feel hit by. Yes. I mean, I do think there's one grace note we'll just drop in there for a second, which is, I mean, you talk about capitalism, but what's really interesting is how many of these changes are occurring 
Um, I mean, possibly uh, uh, influenced by capitalism, but they're just occurring through the spread of technology and human interaction. I mean, the the way in which human society is becoming more in the moment, the loss of a sense of history, the loss of a sense of respect for institutions that have historically earned their crust, um, that, that kind of um, radical quasi-anarchism that we're starting to see emerging um, and that we see in British politics even, that, that isn't a capitalist thing as such. I mean, it has a relation to it, but it's a, it's a function of the way in which um, an individualist, rationalist society is evolving in the 21st century. And I think in a way that's the more important feature to focus on than the worries about capitalism, which, you know, are serious and need to be put in perspective. So your but, worries but, are more to do with like a, a hyper-empiricism, a sort of we, rationalism. I think, and... we, I think, I think, I think the, the thing about capitalism is it's a problem that we have a bit of a handle on. You know, it hit a peak in 2008 in the financial sector. We can see it in other ways. I think the tech sector now and the way in which individual minds are being focused and being altered by their interactions with um, physical objects and technology is the emerging story. And what's fascinating is, you know, you pick up uh, one of these uh, phones, I won't name any particular, but that is not a tool. That is a device with a mind of its own designed to distract and attract your attention. It's, there's things there that are doing what you want and there are things there that are doing what it wants and you think you're programming it and in many ways it's programming you're you. You're the bloody that's product. The, well, that, <laughs> yeah, that is, that's the story. That I think that's a really, really important 21st century story. In many ways, at least as significant and long-term in its impact as the worries we might have about capitalism and society. And I think it massively affects our politics. And what's fascinating about our politics now is that we have this yearning for authenticity that's absolutely right. But the counterpart of that is we, we, we've lost respect for the things that we th- used to think earned that respect, you know. Um, if we, if, the you social know, self, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and, and so, you know, uh, the, the classic modern line is, is, in a way, it is Bentham. It is, you know, what does he know? What does she know? You know, what, what have they got to bring That's to the table? I hate UCL, but... Well, no, no, wow. <laughs> Sorry, that was an aside. That was an well, aside. Well, listen, let's be clear. As a utilitarian institution, yes. UCL's got a lot to answer for. Right. I totally <laughs> agree. No, 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 no. My version of UCL is a slightly different one. But um, um, no, but it's a, it's a... You have to understand also I'm seeing it against the balkanisation of Oxford um, and Cambridge and some of these other institutions. Anyway, so... so um, but let's come to it. So, so, so when you have a society which has no memory... When you have a society where everything earns its crust in the moment yes. at that second, then it, it, there's a danger that you are building in forms of stupidity and forms of um, foolishness, which can be fantastically damaging. And we've got to find a way as a society to, to, to as it were, demysticize that, to, um, rem- to, 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 to remove that enchantment of technology and to become more sophisticated about how we use it and how we think about it. Because at the moment, um, I think we're slightly struggling with it. But we- what's interesting is the younger generation are better than the older generation. The younger generation understand the limitations of social media. Many of my generation don't. And it's just very interesting to see the contrast between the two. I mean, I don't know how we bring it back. Um, you know, I mean, the way you describe it reminds me a little bit about that opening bit in, in Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue, where yes. he describes, you know, the world has been sort of like destroyed by some sort of cultural atomic bomb, as yes. it were. And, and how do you how do you reclaim, how do you find history in a world that where history has been 
wiped away. Which shows how naive I am. I'm writing books about the problem and trying to get people to read them. I mean, that's the thing, really. Yes, yes, yes. That's essential. Listen, um, I'm going to ask you one more question before you've got to go, because I know you have to go. Uh, Talk to me about what's happening at the moment in uh, government and the European Union. And uh, so yesterday was the day in which um, Parliament was prorogued um, there are people incredibly angry about what's happening here. Uh, what's your view on this? Well, I think in a way, a lot of the anger uh, is comes from a lack of history, comes from a lack of a sense of history. So uh, it's not by any means unprecedented that there should be this kind of argument. We haven't known it um, recently, and people tend to judge everything by the experience of the last 20 or 30 years. We had enormous ructions in the 1970s. I mean, this is going to make you laugh, but my mind goes back to 1783. So in, <laughs> in, in 1783, I'm, 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 not being, I'm not being entirely serious. You're going to be a really crusty old Don somewhere. I, I really, I, I so I'm not, but it's just interesting. No, I'm going to be um, playing my trumpet on a beach somewhere. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but the, uh, no, so, so I, mean, I mean, all I mean, yeah, someone says, what we want at Christmas, you know, a rhythm section. <laughs> no, the the uh, uh, listen. I, it just it's just you know what happens. You know, you at that point you had William Pitt put into power by the king in that case, un, unelected as it was said. You know, wasn't there hadn't been an election. Um, everyone goes. Uh, th- th- there's a piece of uh, in that case completely unconstitutional um, finagling in which they kill the uh, Fox's East India Bill. Um, the government falls. Pitt comes in. Um, and then there's several months of static, complete uproar, everyone shouting at each other. And then there's a general election in 1784, which he wins hands down and then governs highly effectively for the next 20 years. Now, my point is... Um, Sounds like you're talking about Boris. Well, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not making any reference to, current, to any current events. All I'm saying is that... Um, you know, the, the, the British system periodically goes through ructions. And the more we fail to attend to history and the more we fail to listen to the past, the the more foolish we're going to be in our reactions. And this synthetic anger, um, actually, some of it's real anger and some of it's synthetic anger, and everyone throwing their hands up. I mean, you know, we talk about the absolute constitutional monstrosity. Well, of course, this, as everyone knows, the perfect right for the government to prorogue parliament um, in front of a Queen's speech if it wants to present new legislation. Um, there's nothing unconstitutional about that. I mean, one could argue, you know, one can make other arguments about it, but that, there's nothing unconstitutional about it. And of course, the amount of time, parliamentary time lost is four days. I mean, it's not, you know, the, the suggestion you would have had might have been that somehow, you know, uh, Parliament had been suspended as such and we were entering a period of personal rule akin to that of Charles I. I mean, what are they talking about? <laughs> so I think one has to have a sense of perspective about this and that would be my one, my one reflection. Jesse, you've got to go and run the country. So uh, thank you very much for taking time on a busy day to come and talk and make your confession. Charles, it's a delight. Thank you so much. I couldn't think of a better confessor. <laughs> Cheers, Dimwood. Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing. And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Confessions.